0: Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic. In this week's show, we have honored to have as our guest Dr. Susanna Heschel, the Eli Black Professor of Jewish Studies at Dartmouth College. Her scholarship focuses on Jewish-Christian relations in Germany during the 19th and 20th centuries, the history of biblical scholarship, and the history of antisemitism. Her numerous publications include Abraham Geiger and the Jewish Jesus, The Aryan Jesus, Christian Theologians and the Bible in Nazi Germany, in numerous articles and papers. She's also the daughter of one of my personal heroes, civil rights activists, and modern Jewish philosopher Abraham Joshua Heschel. Today's topic is the current social and political trends in the US, and the normalizing of bigotry, racial hatred, and anti-Semitism. From the political provocateurs who mesmerize large audiences to irresponsible political leaders, as well as celebrities who act as mouthpieces to radical groups, We are delving into this subject with desire to make sense of these trends and have our guests shed light on the subject. Dr. Heschel, welcome to our show. In the last year, there has been a resurfacing of anti-Semitism in the U.S. In an age of cemetery desecrations, Jewish community centers being evacuated often, a 45% spike in anti-Jewish incidents across college campuses, as well as other incidents in England, France, and Sweden, We believe it's important to discuss how racism, ethnic hatred, and religious persecution affect modern-day politics. Please tell us, what are the factors that have exacerbated this problem? Is it something which lay dormant and has been awakened for political purposes? Or is this a form of nationalism that has come to the forefront because of societal problems?
1: Well, thank you, first of all, for inviting me to join you on your program. It's good to be with you. And I appreciate also the focus that you're placing on the rise of anti-Semitic and racist, uh, not only language, but actions. And I'm speaking to you from Boston, um, and as you may have already heard on the news, there was a very nasty incident last night at a baseball game in Boston, when uh, some of the Boston um, so-called fans, I don't want to use the term, were sitting at the Fenway Stadium and made racist remarks, jeering remarks, directed against an African American baseball player for the Orioles who were playing against the Red Sox. And that's been on the news all day today in Boston. I I have to I, I bring this up in part because we have a tone of being shocked by what has emerged in the last year in the United States. Well, when I think about what just happened last night in Boston, I have to say that, on some level, I'm not shocked and one should not be shocked because Boston itself is a pretty segregated city. So, how much of this is actually something new? How much is sort of coming to the surface, let's say? And how much is a continuation? Of what has been an American nightmare for a long time.
0: But is it as bad as some people might paint it? You know, one of the subjects you're an expert on is Nazi Germany. Are there true similarities with what took place in the 1930s and 40s with our current political climate? Is this a fair comparison or is it an exaggeration from some people?
1: I think it is a fair comparison. It's a fair comparison because the kind of racism that one experienced. In Nazi Germany, it didn't begin with murder. It began with words, with slogans that people tended to minimize. And so I think, in that sense, yeah, it's, it really does feel very similar to me today. Uh, and in that sense, yes, it is of great concern to me. I don't think that we will, in this country, repeat the atrocities that were committed in Nazi Germany but I do think there's a reason we have millions of people visiting the Holocaust Museum in Washington every year, because we want to learn what happened then and try to gain a better perspective on the dangers that could emerge in this country and how we might react to them. And I, I think uh, we, take, we take Nazi Germany and the Holocaust very seriously seriously as Americans, maybe one could say because we have a sense of innocence, American innocence, that we're the ones who fought against Hitler, that it couldn't happen here, and that I think is actually probably true. Democracy was very fragile in Germany before 1933. It had just started in 1918. We have strong institutions in this country. At the same time, it's clear that despite the civil rights movement and the feeling that we really overcame a great deal in this country, there is still very widespread, horrific bigotry on so many levels, some of it blatant, and some of it maybe even more dangerous because it's so subtle. Some of it is enshrined in institutions. Some of it people don't even recognize as bigotry. A lot of people wouldn't say, I'm bigoted. No. They'd say, no, I'm not at all. But they are. And so it also makes it hard to address. And I suppose you heard about the police shooting of a 15-year-old unarmed Boy, African American boy, in the suburb of Dallas last night. Yet again. So yes.
0: So do you think that American culture um, is just kind of it's like cyclical? Like there's there's unresolved issues that keep coming up.
1: Are these unresolved issues that keep coming up? Well, that's a, an interesting question and an important question. I guess I would then ask myself, well, what does it mean for something to be resolved when you say these are unresolved issues? What would it take? What does it mean? That's really a, a tough question because we did have a very intense civil rights movement in the 60s, and I think a lot of people felt that we had made enormous progress and that bigotry had been, if not entirely, at least largely overcome. At least the law was on our side, we felt. And yet, now we're beginning to see efforts made, even at the highest levels of the federal government, to overturn some of the very basic voting rights that had been the goal, the achievement of the civil rights movement. And, you know, we're talking now about members of Congress, members of state legislatures, governors, So, um, yeah, what have we achieved and what would it take? Uh, I wouldn't have ever imagined at that time during the civil rights era (laughs) that anyone would ever try to take back what we had accomplished as an American country. Because there was a sense, you know, ministers found that they couldn't preach segregationist sermons any longer. They had just just didn't work. Um, even the president, President Johnson said, we shall overcome. there's a sense that this is you know, this movement that unified us, that we didn't want to be a bigoted country.
0: In, in American society there's a justification of racism by using democratic demographic data and statistics and sometimes even projecting fears on the other is, um, and you, you said in one of your lectures that racism is a vehicle to reinterpret the um, principle of status and power. And then people use it to reinterpret the Bible or society and politics. So is, um, is, is there something different with American society from other societies where there's like an obsession with the other and with race and categorizing people based on on their demographics that you see?
1: Uh, Well, actually, not really, no. Uh, I would say no, because, in fact, a lot of other countries have issues of race, definitely. On the other hand, you know, we proclaim ourselves, the United States, as a, a very old and trying democracy, a country very concerned with equality, a place where in fact people can rise to the top starting from very little it does happen here and that's great so there's a sense that if you know <laughs> the title of that novel by Sinclair Lewis it can't happen here we're we're too deeply democratic we have we have too many institutions that put checks on power like the federal judiciary, as we've just seen in the last couple of months, halting certain so called executive orders from the president. So, yeah, I think that uh, other countries do experience racism. But let's ask this what is it that keeps racism so tenacious, so persistent? We all, let's say we say, okay, as a country, we think it's mm. not good. It's not good to be a racist country. It's not good for people to be racist. Let's get over it. So why, do, why does it stay? I think that's an important question to ask. What are the forces that keep racism in power? And it's true that, in some sense, it can be religious uh, functions. Uh, people use religious arguments to justify racism. Maybe racism functions for some people as a kind of substitute for religion. Sometimes racism is—it's uh, eroticized. It makes people excited and happy and feel good and gives them a thrill. Let's say, as if um, somehow everything else in their life is miserable, but they can at least be racist. They don't have a job. They don't have a place to live. But they can be racist, and that gives them a sense of importance apparently, in some cases. So what can we do to, to change that? And I felt that that was something Dr. King addressed, that he made people feel important and noble and significant for saying no to racism, for insisting on equality, for marching arm in arm, And I guess I, I wonder where, what happened? Where did that go?
0: In one of your papers, you mentioned um, that there's an imagined threat of spiritual decadence brought about by Jews, Africans, Indians, Asians, and that they're destroying European culture as it's seen in racist literature of the 19th and 20th century. Do you see the same type of rhetoric being spoken about here in America about Jews, blacks, Middle Eastern people, Latinos, or Latin American immigrants?
1: Um, To some extent, yes. Uh, You know, this is a big country, so there are a lot of different strands that take place here. So, uh, yes, to some extent. I think the point in Germany was that, um, you know, in the 19th century, racism was viewed as something very positive, that it was serious and thoughtful. Racial theory was a way of explaining the world, why Europe was so well-off compared to other parts of the world, and so forth. But what's interesting about that is that the arguments were that races were immutable. You couldn't change them. The people were born that way. It wasn't because of social or economic or political circumstances. In contrast, for example, to... The Mark Yassen, the Nobel Prize laureate, who has argued that, or demonstrated actually, that there is no famine where there's a democracy. Famine is not about not having enough food, it's about the distribution of food. It's an important point. But racial theory in the 19th century arose with this notion that people are the way they are, unchanging because of their race, whatever that means. And yet, that was the same era, the 19th century, when people became historians, where the, the writing of history was the central mode of scholarly investigation. And to write history means to look at change and to contextualize ideas and movements so that nothing was static for a historian. And there's a contradiction there, and I'm curious about that. But the other element about the racism that I studied from my book on the Nazis was that although races complained about bodily characteristics, you know, the color of one's skin or the shape of the nose or the hair or something like that, the real fear wasn't the body part itself. But if you look at their writings, ultimately what they're saying is that the body part has incarnate in it a kind of moral and spiritual danger So Jews were said to be dangerous to Germany, Judaizing Germany, bringing a degenerate moral and spiritual quality to Germany. So it's not the body itself, it's not that my Jewish nose is going to attack you, but rather this degeneracy that's inherent in the nose or incarnate in the nose can be divorced from it. That's the danger. And at the same time, you realize racists also imagine themselves, whether they admit it or not, but they imagine themselves as vulnerable. So even though they may proclaim themselves as superior and high and mighty and strong, their argument is really about their own vulnerability, that they too may become Judaized, let's say. They will become degenerate by the presence of Jews. And you hear this with some of the anti-immigrant rhetoric that we hear in the United States today. I think today in the States, there is perhaps a little bit less of the moral and spiritual danger of African-Americans or Asian-Americans or so forth, and more a sense of they're going to take our jobs away, they're going to attack the economy. My life is fragile, in other words. It's vulnerable. They will take it away from me. So the vulnerability is still present. Which is of course complete nonsense, you understand. I'm just thinking about the the attempted logic or illogic of these arguments.
0: And and them using it you know, the politicians using them to to get the base to come and vote for them. So um uh, in one of your lectures you spoke about bystanders in you know in Nazi Germany, people try to minimize the responsibility of the public, but didn't your father say that um, Few are guilty, but we're all responsible. So if we see in in our current political climate people being discriminated or mistreated or hateful speech um, and we don't do anything about it, how much are we in cahoots with the people who are doing it?
1: Exactly. And we need more speech these days. Uh, I think sometimes we have a tendency to Mm, just keep quiet or just swallow when we hear something really awful that we don't agree with, but we don't want to get into an argument. Uh, And that's a problem. You know, I have a a colleague, a friend, um, Ofer Ben-Amos, who teaches music at Colorado College, and he described something wonderful to me. A particular speaker was coming to campus who was um, not a racist speaker, but somebody whose politics were offensive to him. And he and a few of the students simply wrote on a big piece of paper, I do not agree. And they went to the lecture, and when the speaker said some things that they didn't like, they just held up the piece of paper. So it wasn't uh, a violent demonstration, but they they gave themselves a voice, and the speaker saw it, and saw it over and over again. And it was effective on both sides. And that's a very minimal, small, little, tiny thing one can do. Very small. I know some people are afraid to be too loud, too outspoken, but this is a small way to start. And then one has to go beyond that. And I think that the United States right now is in fact energized. The question will be all of those people who went to rallies and were enthusiastic when they heard vulgar, outrageous, racist things spoken by a candidate for president who then was elected president. Uh, what do we do with those people? How do we say to them, this is not right? In some sense, we have to be cautious to convince them without shaming them. They will eventually find out that what they thought they were voting for, in fact, wasn't. That they were, uh, what's the experience? They were snookered, they were fool- fooled uh, by someone who uh, used them. And that can be a very shaming experience. So somehow we have to address those people or be prepared when they realize that the wool was pulled over their eyes uh, and reel them in without making them so angry that they turn violent. Because that does worry me. There are a lot of guns in this country.
0: According to one provocateur, uh, people are tired of identity politics and women, racial minorities, and the LGBT community are discriminating against white males by branding them as privileged and out of touch. Is this possible? Can the left be prejudicial just like the right?
1: Yes. I think we've spent too much time dissecting racism and sexism and so forth and not enough time building alliances. And that is a problem. And it is a problem to say I only can you know, or if I were to say to somebody, you can't understand, you cannot understand my experience as a Jew because you're not Jewish. Well, it's actually not true. I actually have to say that when I first went to Germany with a lot of trepidation and, and of kind of holding my nose and not wanting to have anything to do with any German people, I went just to take a summer course in uh, intensive German language that I needed for graduate school. But you know, over time, it turns out that I formed very intense friendships with Germans who were not Jewish, they're Christian, but they were as deeply engaged in their history as I was, and there was a way in which they understood my very deep, horrific feelings, they understood better than my American friends who had a lot of other things on their minds, including my Jewish friends. So I just don't think it's true that you have to have the identity to understand the experience. And I think it's also self-defeating politically. On the contrary, I want to say to people, you have to understand my experience, even if you haven't had it. You have to understand it, and you have to vote in a way that will help me in my life, as well as your life.
0: Another issue that has been brought up is victimhood, how every ethnic group and members of different social identities are often portraying themselves as being persecuted. Are people fatigued by this rhetoric, and are there ways to communicate the plight of different groups without sounding whiny? or?
1: yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, actually, I'll tell you a story. My father uh, was was never somebody who spoke about victimhood. Uh, in fact, he didn't speak about anti-Semitism very often at all. In fact, when he got together with Catholics, for instance, during the Second Vatican Council, he didn't reproach them and tell them, oh, these terrible things you said about Judaism, isn't it terrible, and so on. He didn't. He talked about, first of all, he talked about Judaism, talked about Jewish experience, Jewish history. And then he said, you know, we have to look for things that we have in common. We as Jews have to express gratitude to the church for what it has accomplished in Western civilization and what it's done for us as Jews in certain respects, preserving certain Hebrew texts, for example. And Christians, you have to realize your religion is not diminished by Judaism, it's enhanced. And in fact, all religions should feel that way. A religious person becomes more religious in an environment where people of different religions, different faiths, are all religiously exploring more deeply what it means to be a person of faith. So, uh, my father once said to me, I, I, I was doing my homework one day, and all of a sudden, I had an amazing thought. I thought, I have a life, and it's mine. It belongs to me. It's fantastic. And I was so excited. I thought, you know, I can do anything. I could study anything. I could travel. And so on. It's mine. And I went to tell my father. And he listened, and then he said to me, yes, but what are you going to do with it? So one can explore one's history, and in fact, we should and we do and we look at racism and the way it's shaped our lives in very bad ways and our ancestors as well, we should. But then we have to ask, what do we do with that? What do we do with that experience, with that knowledge, with that awareness, with that feeling, that passion that comes? So I would say, yes, I I know, I know I've been a victim of sexism, but then what am I going to do with that knowledge? And what am I going to, How am I going to transform into something that will help other people? So it's a first step, but it's not the last step. That's the problem.
0: Definitely. Um, The philosophical leaders of the far right criticize progressives for being too feeling-based and too worried about political correctness to address real social issues. Do, Do they have a point or are they just pandering to social Darwinist ideologies?
1: I don't think that's uh, a legitimate point at all. Uh, I think we uh, as progressives are the ones who have introduced some very important changes in American society that have been to the benefit of all. One of them, for example, has to do with health care. And you know, a lot of people opposed it. A lot of people on the far right opposed the idea that, for example, if you have uh, an illness... At one point in your life, then for the rest of the time, rest of your life, an insurance company can turn you away, and so forth. Pre-existing condition. But at this point, we got it through. Everybody wants that. Everybody recognizes that, that in fact, is how it should be. You know, I ask myself: after the Second World War, Germany went back to being a democracy, and it had a political spectrum from the far left to the far right. Even the far right came to realize that there are certain basic needs in a society that human beings have, like health care. They accepted it. And that's what we need to do at this point. Instead of looking at an idea and saying, is this a left-wing idea, right-wing idea, it's a good idea, period. In Germany, a right-wing politician will say, yes, universal health coverage, I stand for that. So does it make it right-wing or left-wing? No. Some things are simply universal across the spectrum. So, yes, the kind of critique by right-wing is wrong. It's silly. That's not a critique anyway. It's just rhetoric.
0: And uh, my last question. In, in the class I took about Rabbi Heschel at uh, Spurs College, Dr. Sherwin mentioned a statement in the Talmud that was very important to your father. Uh, which says that embarrassing someone is like murdering them. So my question in our modern context, is there no decency left in modern society, which stereotypes individuals, pigeonholes massive groups of people, and denigrate people by their religious or ethnic group? Uh, ha- is it getting out of hand in your eyes? And is that is part of that in- embarrassing people or trying to... Um, really use identity as a political tool as compared to, uh, like um, Martin Luther King said, judging people by their character instead of their race.
1: Yes. So actually, that was a passage from the Talmud that my father used to inscribe on the first page of my school notebooks when I was a little girl. You never embarrass somebody publicly. It's a very important principle. Uh, And in fact, in Jewish law, There are two things that are unforgivable. One is murder. Because once you murder somebody, how can you ask the person for forgiveness? And I cannot forgive you for killing somebody else. And the other is shaming someone in public, spreading gossip about someone. You can't take it back. Once the lie is out there in the world, it goes from one person to the next. It's spread around. And you destroy a person's life, a person's reputation, a person's livelihood. It's a terrible thing, gossip. And I think it's a very important lesson for all of us. You know that starting many years ago, ten years ago or so, people started spreading the rumor that Obama was a Muslim. It's not true. Or that he wasn't born in the United States. It's not true. But these were lies. The poet, the Russian poet, Joseph Brodsky, had a poem years ago, I think it's called The Lie or The Statue, The Lie. Anyway, it was a great poem about that. How people can even build a statue to a lie. What we need to do right now is to recognize that all of us as human beings want to live decent lives. We want to be surrounded by good people we want our families to be good to us. And we want, we want to have a happy life. And you can't have a happy life when you're angry, mean, nasty. It's not possible. When I read some of the racist literature from the Nazi period, I think, what kind of, what kind of people were these? What kind of friendships could they have? Someone who's so nasty, who says such horrible things. I want to murder Jews. I want to take a gun and kill Jews. What kind of a person is that? I wonder what, what kind of family life did such a person have? What does this, What is that about? And so perhaps we need to remind our fellow Americans that we want to make a decent country for all of us. We want to live noble lives. And my father felt very strongly about that. He said that when he was growing up in his religious family in Warsaw, he said, I felt I grew up surrounded by people of religious nobility, which I think is a wonderful phrase, religious nobility. What really counts in life is the nobility of the spirit. So Martin Luther King and my father and many others have held up that model to us. I think people do respond with their hearts. We just need to remind them from time to time. They get a little off the path. We have to bring them back.
0: Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, we would love to have you back and, and discuss these important topics and maybe uh, go deeper into some of your works and, and the research. One of the reasons we have the show is to spread good knowledge and good information, and and hopefully we can impact some people. So, again, uh, we're very very privileged to have you on the show. And, uh, again, thank you for coming on The Mystic and the Skeptic.
1: Good. Bye-bye.
0: And we'll be back next week with another show.